Welcome to the MS Dev Show, episode number 159. This week, we talk with Rima Naimi about Cosmos DB, learn to code with a fidget spinner, and what if companies interview translators the way they interview coders. This episode of the MS Dev Show is brought to you by Aspose, the market leader of .NET and Java APIs for file business formats. Natively work with DocX, XSLX, PPT, PDF, MSG, MPP, image formats, and many more. Raygun gives you complete visibility on errors, crashes, and performance problems affecting your end users. Replicate issues in seconds rather than digging through log files or having to rely on users to report errors or crashes. Raygun gives you a window into how users are really experiencing your software applications. Check it out today at raygun.com. This week, we have Rima Naimi, GPM in Azure Cosmos DB, previously an architect in Azure Cosmos DB in the open source software analytics team at Microsoft. She also jumpstarted a poly-based technology and shipped it in SQL DW, SQL Server, PDW, and SQL Server 2016. She's also a PhD in computer science from Purdue and has an MBA from the University of Chicago. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Great to yeah. be here. Yeah. Very impressive background as well. Uh, very cool. Thanks. Uh, so, Carl, what's going on? Well, I just want to remind everybody who uh, hasn't heard or is still on the fence about it that we will be at that conference mm -hmm. in uh, the middle of Wisconsin at the beginning of August, and we want to meet you there. So if you have never been to a conference like this, it is an amazing place. It's, um, In fact, uh, I was at the, uh, the first one, and that was a, where I really kind of opened my eyes to like how awesome uh, going to conferences are and how uh, welcoming the developer community is. So if you want to kind of meet other developers, learn uh, just tons of new things, it's a, it's a polyglot conference. So if you want to hear about JavaScript and then maybe, you know, you know, some Ruby thing and follow up with Microsoft technologies, it's all there. Yeah. So we're one, we're one month out, which is pretty crazy. And it's interesting what you said too, you know, that's, that's what you made when that's what th that conference made you like conferences, which is funny. Cause a lot of people listening are probably like, I hate conferences. <laughs> so this is a conference that you will enjoy. And, and not only that, but it's at a water park. So bring your family. Uh, yeah. the family can go off and do the water park at during the day. You can chill with them at night or you could do the after conference stuff. There's always family friendly things. They have tons of family tracks. They have a board game night that's uh, actually sponsored by a local, uh, board game company. So, uh, there's always stuff to do. It's always mm -hmm. a blast. Absolutely. And then in addition, we would like to just remind those who haven't, check us out on our Slack. You can sign up at slack.msdevshow.com, send yourself an invite, and join us. We want to uh, talk to you there. Just yep. a nice way to just keep up with each other in between podcast episodes. Yep, we're getting, we're getting, starting to get closer to critical mass there. Uh, so what do we have for the comment of the week? The comment of the week uh, gets a developer small business license for Exposed Total for .NET, which includes all of the Exposed.NET products in one package. And this week, we actually got it on a comment from Channel 9. Uh, Mike Sage says he really enjoys the show, but he must admit for multiple reasons. Of course, there's the excellent content and always fun news. But uh, he admits that he usually falls asleep asleep to the show. If his son gets up early on Saturday or Sunday mornings, he tends to be noisy. And while he can sleep through anything, his wife can't. So he'll take him to the basement, turn on the podcast, and after the news, he falls asleep. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's 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 great, I, I guess. <laughs> Wait, we should play right right here I should play some like lullaby music for him. <laughs> that's after the news, Jason. Yeah. And he says also spaces. How can anybody endure tabs? <laughs> Ouch. Um, yeah, that's, that's very cool. And I, I also want to point out that, uh, people probably notice that we have, um, a second sponsor now. So we have uh Ray gun as a sponsor and obviously we have the ad and the, the pre-roll and the mid-roll. Uh, but you know, I just want to do a kind of a special thanks to our sponsors cause they, uh, they make it so that we can do this show and, uh, and do it right. So really appreciative. So definitely go, go check out the sponsor sites and go check out what they have. Yeah, it just so anybody, uh, you know, to dispel any mess, J Jason and I aren't uh, raking in any cash from this. This this goes back to <laughs> to pay for the pay for uh, whatever our costs are. But then we also give the rest back to you guys. So if you are coming to that conference or meet me up anywhere, I always have stuff to hand out. So as I was gonna say, I'm I'm broke over here. I got my 
I got my tablets and my drone. I'm like trying to figure out if there's any expensive stuff I can grab. No, this is, uh, <laughs> yeah, you're, you're absolutely right though. Um, okay. So let's move on. Let's talk about the news. Uh, what if companies interview translators the way they interview coders? I love this article. This was oh, great. This was a great article and we're not going to go through it in great detail, but I definitely want to link here for you guys. I mean, mm-hmm. I think we've all been through those interviews where you, you go in there and you know, it's a development position. Maybe let's just say it's a, a web development position and you go in there like, Oh, let, let me, you know, code this, you know, an implementation on us of a stack on the whiteboard yeah. over here and, <laughs> you're like, and then you're like, well, what does this happen having to do with me making your website pretty? And you're like, you know, it, it, I mean, yes, it's something that we've all done probably, you know, learned it in school, but you know, what does this have to do with the day to day pieces? Yeah. And this is just a, a nice satirical piece, you know, putting this same, you know, paradigm into another profession. And it makes it really look like make this interview technique look silly. Yeah. So re- it probably makes sense for Rima's team, actually, because they're like super smart, like down, you know, they're 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 worrying about all those little details and performance and, and things like that. So do you do you do a lot of interviewing Rima? I do, especially lately. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's uh, it's, you know, something it's a it's a necessary evil. But I, I suspect uh, um, you're not asking them about things that were relevant, you know, a decade ago and not relevant today. Well, you know, it's uh, actually uh, the fundamentals are still relevant. They're just now running yeah. at a different scale, you know. Yeah, I was gonna say, yeah, your team is is probably kind of an, an exception to this, but you know, you look at a lot of these like full stack developers and and ask them, you know, uh, you know, code out on my whiteboard this linked list scenario. It's just like this is this is so far away from you know what they're going to be doing on a day to day basis. True. True. Um, true. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Uh, these maps reveal the hidden structures of choose your own adventure books. Uh, I, I, I really like infographics and this is kind of taking, you know, one of the things that I grew up with those choose your own adventure books where you could read a few pages, then you make a decision on which way the story should go. And, uh, I, I didn't realize it, but it's, it's kind of a thing to actually make, uh, maps that represent the different paths in a book. Yep. And, and not only that, but this article actually goes into, uh, comparing the the graphs that are generated of the earlier books compared to the later books and how much more complicated certain ones are. And these make really interesting visualizations that kind of show you how many pages before each decision and kind of the trees that are there. And some of you even have loops in them. Uh, so it, it's really uh, uh, graphical and in your face on how the, how the paths uh, can take shape. Yeah, by by balloon to the Sahara has forty eight decision points. That is crazy. And then there's one of these that only has like a handful of decision right. points. So it's kind of interesting eight. seeing the the extreme values there. Yeah, eight decision points. So this is kind of a really weird connection. But uh, I was actually at dinner with Ryan Crocker the other night, and uh, he, I don't know. He was started talking about choose your own adventure books, and I mentioned this article to him, and he was freaking out. And he's like, "You got to send that to me." <laughs> and as you know, he used to do some work with uh, with Document DB. So just kind of interesting connection. There. Uh, what do we have next here? Learn to code with this fidget spinner. Uh, you know, fidget spinners are all the rage, at least amongst my kids and all of yes. their friends. And I'm sure pretty much everywhere right now where fidget spinners can be shipped to. Uh, they're pretty <laughs> cheap and uh, they're entertaining. But somebody made a, a fidget spinner out of an actual circuit board that you can program yourself. And I just thought that was really cool. Um, if you go to this page, you can see like all the details on it. And there's a link to another place where you can buy it. And I think it's about 40 US dollars. Okay. And I, too bad. I, and they also have like a classroom pack where if you want to get a bunch of them, you can get them at a, probably a discount. I'm assuming I didn't do the math on it, Yeah. but so, I think I'm definitely going to get one at, at the bare minimum to, because I know a few of my kids are interested in development. And even if it's just kind of tweaking a few things instead of doing like any, you know, trying to do it, you know, something from scratch, mm-hmm. I think they would find it really interesting. Yeah, to do like different light patterns. So it, it's got three three wings, obviously, or whatever you call those things, three arms. Uh, one has, the, has an Arduino. Uh, the other has a battery. I don't know how they balance this, though. Um, because the other one just has like, it has a row of LEDs. So I don't know if the weight is correct. Um, actually, now that I look at it, I can see, do you see that there's a battery underneath the other wing? So I bet you that's how they balance it. 
Okay, well, that mystery is solved. Uh, but but very cool, yeah, because I'm, I, you know, Arduino, like, there's such good tooling out there, and it's so easy to reprogram that thing and have different light patterns, so that would be pretty neat to experiment with. Okay, so let's talk uh, Cosmos DB. Uh, so I guess let's just kind of start at the beginning for somebody who, you know, isn't familiar with it. Uh, you know, what is Cosmos DB? Uh, so Cosmos DB is uh, Microsoft's globally distributed multi-model uh, database service. Uh, the way I put it, it's the best thing that could happen to the entire data space. Uh, it's, <laughs> you know, it, that's it pretty much. Uh, so it's really, you know, from the ground up uh, as a cloud service, as a database service, it's designed to exploit the cloud's uh, design center and the economies of scale. So uh, that means it will give you the global presence. So wherever Azure is, wherever the cloud is, Cosmos DB will be there. And fundamentally, it's there to uh, address the need. Um, your users, your devices, your bots uh, are everywhere. And typically, the stateless front ends, uh, when you're building an application, are also everywhere. Now, databases have been traditionally lacking behind. They've been primarily focused on being a local database. So Cosmos DB is trying to address that pain point and that need and disseminates your data wherever your users are and then try to serve them the local data regardless of their uh, geolocation. So as a result, you get very highly responsive experiences because the data is where the users are. And it's obviously also uh, by being a natively built-in cloud service, it tries to exploit all of the elasticity, scalability um, of the cloud itself. Also, the lowest total cost of ownership because behind the scenes, we use the commodity hardware at the massive scale, fine-grained multi-tenancy from the ground up. So we can take hundreds of customers, put them on a single machine or put thousands of them across the cluster. And uh, with all of that, we bake in resource governance across the entire stack. So the utilization of machines and clusters is super, super optimal. And the net result is we can provide the lowest possible cost that, for instance, IAS hosted managed offerings just cannot beat this. And then from the developer's point of view, also, we try to meet the developers wherever they are. Uh, so, and we will talk a little bit more in this podcast, uh, you know, this is the multi-API, multi-model approach where instead of being dogmatic and religious about one and one and only model or uh, one API, we try to embrace the most popular APIs and the models and really make them work and shine on top of, you know, Cosmos DB stack. Mm -hmm. So years ago, when I started at Microsoft, I remember saying like, hey, we, you know, SQL Server... SQL Server is like, I don't want to say incompatible with the cloud, but at the time it was one of these things where, you know, like you install it somewhere and it, it, it didn't have the properties that you're talking about. Now there's, you know, SQL database and, and that's changed a little bit. Um, but when I started, I was talking to people and I'm like, we need, we need a database that will basically do all the things that you described. And they were like, no, that's, you can't, you can't really do that. That's like difficult or impossible. And I was like, you know, there's a lot of smart people at Microsoft. Like I'm, I'm sure we could build this. And, uh, I just had to wait a few years and look at that. You smart people <laughs> built exactly what uh, what I wanted. So this is this is very cool. So that's precisely it, actually. Uh, you know, to give you a little bit of history of Cosmos DB, it's actually seven years in uh, work in progress. So the, oh, so you the, guys were working on it when I was even saying yes, yes, yes. So <laughs> actually, it started out in the late 2010 uh, internally known as Project Florence, uh, mm -hmm. and Dharma Shukla, who is the founder of Cosmos DB, and he's a distinguished engineer and and uh, now general manager of the service, he uh, he actually also noticed, you know, the internal first-party customers, the likes of Bing, Office 365, MSN, Skype, they were building these large-scale internet-scale applications, and mm -hmm. they needed the database backend that could scale with their applications. And they were trying to use relational databases, and they didn't work for them. They were trying to build it in the house, and it also took most of their attention away from the applications 
into their backend database. And so that's precisely uh, why this project uh, and this product was born, to try to address the needs of massively scalable, uh, large-scale applications and try to outsource all of those problems uh, that typically they were facing. And this means running at global scale, being highly elastic with respect to both storage and throughput, provide this very, very low latency to give the near real-time response uh, experience, and then also navigate the consistency choice spectrum and also have the SLAs. Because fundamentally, you know, the way I put it, we are in the service business. And with that comes a certain set of expectations about uh, performance, latency, throughput, availability, and the consistency as well. Mm-hmm. So, so you've talked a bunch about performance, and I know at Build they really mentioned like how how massive a, a scale can be achieved with Cosmos. Can you give us a, a, a kind of a, a sense of how big that we can scale this out in all the different directions? Sure, planet scale. That's <laughs> that would be the <laughs> shortest answer. Now, uh, to give you a little bit more insight, so Cosmos DB is. Uh, what internally is known as a foundational Azure service or layer zero or zero, uh, ring zero service. That means it's automatically available in all Azure regions by default, including sovereign and government clouds. So as Azure adds new regions, we will automatically be rolled out there. Today, we are already running across 34 plus regions. That means you can come take your database entity, for instance, a table, and make it span the entire planet. Um, behind the scenes, the, the multi-region replication is fully transparent and automatic. And you can associate any number of regions with your database account at any time. So the way we call it, it's, it's known as a global distribution turnkey. And to give you the analogy, it's almost like when you come to a car, right, you don't really need to know how the car works behind behind the scenes, you know, how the engine works, how the wheels rotate, how everything is interconnected. You just turn on the key, the car starts up, and it gets you from point A to point B. And this is the similar idea with the global distribution. You come to a world map, you see all of the Azure regions, and then you just select on all of those regions that you want to associate with your database, click save with a single click of a button, your data gets seamlessly replicated across the globe and you can query it at any point in time. And the beautiful part here is that you don't need to do anything with your application as you're adding new regions and you're expanding across the world. Um, All of the endpoints between the database and the application is logical by default. So that means the applications don't need to be redeployed. Uh, If, for instance, a failover occurs, your application will continuously be highly available. But applications also can access the physical endpoints points if they need to, if they want to even optimize for performance further. But by default, it's designed to be globally scalable, very, very highly available. You can also go and dynamically set priorities to the regions. So if, for instance, if a failure occurs, it will actually fail over in the order of those priorities. Uh, You can also, one of the other unique cool things that we provide is you can actually go and simulate uh, regional disaster via an API and test the entire um, application oh, stack for, mm-hmm. you know, should something happens, how would your application actually react? Um, and we also, we are the first and only service that offers comprehensive SLAs for latency, throughput, availability, and consistency. And when you actually go and simulate these failures, you can actually go and see that the SLA doesn't change. So uh, this gives you sort of, you know, the idea that it's planet scale at the same time is also it's really, uh, you know, the scale that we're talking about, uh, it, it, the behind the scenes, the engine is designed to be horizontally scalable. So a single machine is never a bottleneck. You can take a single table and scale it from a few gigabytes to petabytes across many machines and regions. Um, the other fundamental difference is... Uh, the system is designed to independently scale storage and throughput. So you can start out, for instance, with a few gigabytes, scale it to petabyte. You can also seamlessly, transparently uh, scale the throughput itself, for instance, from tens to hundreds of millions of requests per second across multiple regions. And you can actually dynamically change, depending on the region, the time of the day, uh, what is the throughput that you need. So for instance, let's assume you have an application that is running um, globally 
globally. Uh, if it's a daytime in, say, in Asia, and it's a nighttime in North America, you can dynamically actually fluctuate the, the throughput that you need because the volume that you will expect will be different uh, based on the geolocation cool. and the time of the day. Uh, and the customer is paid by the hour for the provision throughput that they need. Um, we also support the requests, both uh, requests per second and requests per minute for different workloads. So uh, this ensures that you never have to provision for the peak. Um, you can basically go and optimize for stable workloads, but then have a reserved pool of resources to just address these you know, occasional spikes. If, for instance, maybe somebody tweets about you application and all of a sudden you have a flood of users you know bombarding your database uh, you can automatically uh, accommodate for that without you know really over provisioning to accommodate for these surprising spikes um, and again the customers pay only for the throughput and the storage that they need yeah this is incredible I mean it sounds like it sounds like you guys really thought about everything <laughs> so very uh, cool yes it really was born you know it, it was customer backward driven yeah. approach to trying to address these points and the other sort of thing to think about you know and this is for me like as a tacky I find it really incredibly uh, exciting is that the way the architecture was done is that really without any dogma or religion about how the systems should be built it's really working backwards from what the needs are and what is the most elegant and flexible way to go and build it inside the system like Cosmos DB. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that the example of being able to test the failover, like that's something that the partners I work with, you know, they 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 need that. Like that's always a requirement. And usually it's something where somebody will build something, you know, or there's this database product and it's like, hey, they want to be able to test this failover. And it's like, hmm, that's an interesting use case. Like we should figure out how to do that. <laughs> but yes. the, the, the fact that like, you're just like, yep, we got that, you know, right off the bat, I think is, uh, I think is really cool. Yes. Um, and then, so the other, one of the cool things about uh, Cosmos DB and one of the things that was uh, announced at Build was the fact that you have all these different interface types. So, uh, you know, previously, you know, you could do use like a DocDB uh, interface and then there was a MongoDB interface, but now there's also table storage and GraphDB. And I think we should talk about that more deeply, but um, just the... The, the 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 ability to be able to use those different interfaces I find amazing because I've uh, I've created some Azure functions where I just needed to do some simple state management and being able to use the Node.js MongoDB client which it, it's super easy to use just a few lines of code I could be using Cosmos DB uh, which is which is really cool so you know I don't I don't know if you want to kind of walk through these or kind of compare like you, you know what are the capabilities of these different interfaces sure so I I think fundamentally I, the way I put it, the beauty of the Cosmos DB is actually that globally distributed, horizontally scalable, very, very flexible stack uh, with mm -hmm. you know consistency models, comprehensive SLAs. And then everything that we put on top of that becomes orders of magnitude differentiated. So mm -hmm. one of the things that we also, you know, uh, as a team decided, you know, fundamentally, no data is born relational in the physical world. It's born in whatever shape or form it was born. So uh, uh, yeah. As a result, we added the native support for multiple data models. So the database engine operates on this concept called Atom Record Sequence or ARS-based type system. All of the data models are efficiently translated to this ARS, and then APIs and wire protocols are supported via these extensible modules on top of it. So, for instance, uh, behind the scenes, basically, the instance of a given data model, whether it's a key value or a document or a graph, is materialized as trees. And we currently support a graph, documents, key value, column family, uh, and more data models will come. So that was kind of like one of the fundamental decisions made there. And the key insight there is that because it's built on this core stack, by default, for instance, if you take a graph, it automatically becomes globally distributed, horizontally scalable, with guaranteed yeah. low latency, with consistency models, with comprehensive SLAs. And then on top of that, another decision was made, let's put native support for multiple APIs, formats, and wire protocols to meet the developers where they are. So what that means is, what does this actually enable? Well, number one is no recompilation is needed. So that means in many cases, the applications that are already built, whether they're running already on-prem or even in another cloud, they don't need to be recompiled. The other insight is that 
Now developers get better SLAs, lower total cost of ownership. They get the enterprise-grade security and amazing capabilities without requiring changing a single line of their application code or data access layer. But even further, you know, developers can still continue leveraging their existing open source software tool chains and ecosystems and their expertise and now tap into the whole power of the cloud, which is very, very powerful. And for us, we didn't need to go and re-implement uh, you know, the entire tool chain and ecosystem of all these tools that developers already love to use. So we are leveraging, and the developers can continue to leverage their existing tools that they love. Uh, lifting and shifting from on-prem to cloud becomes very, very, um, you know, simple. Um, there is no also fear of a vendor lock-in because, you know, these are open source software popular APIs that developers continue to using. And it also allows you to use the symmetric on-premise and cloud database development. So, for instance, you can use, um, you know, uh, MongoDB on-prem, but then you can seamlessly migrate onto Cosmos DB on Azure. Um, how are they different or, uh, you know, uh, the same? Most of the APIs, you know, they are, uh, you know, the, the goal here is that we provide the native support for those APIs. So uh, each one is designed for a particular set of use cases or scenarios, or maybe it's a preference for the developers. For instance, if you're developing against Graph, chances are you will come in from, you know, open source using Apache Gremlin. And in this case, you can go and natively go query the graph that lives inside Cosmos DB. If you're developing against a document uh, data model, you can come in and use native document DB API, or you can come in through a MongoDB API. So in that respect, uh, you know, we embrace all of them. I, I view them as like different front um, front doors into this you know, yeah. beautiful garden of Cosmos DB, or I don't know what the better analogy to give. And <laughs> you can come in through whichever door that makes the most sense for you. Now, the other key insight here is that if you look at most of the applications that are being built in the cloud, they tend to be polyglot in nature. So what you will frequently notice as the backend architecture, you will see an app, and yet then you will see one database for transactional processing, another database for key value, another database for documents, another database for graph. And so you see four or five services in the backend of the application that creates a very, very rigid and complex architecture. What it also uh, forces developers to do is actually spend most of their time on the backend trying to fine-tune these four different database services for performance, for um, for, for instance, for consistency, um, as a result, the total cost again increases. Uh, and then most of the productivity of the application developers get spent on the backend rather than focusing on the value of their application. By having something like Cosmos DB that actually consolidates and enables these multiple APIs, uh, you simplify the backend tremendously. And then from, you know, another view, you can look at it. Each API on top of Cosmos DB is almost like a managed service by itself. So MongoDB API on top of Cosmos DB, it's like Mo managed Mongo on Azure. Uh, mm -hmm. Gremlin API on top of Cosmos DB, it's like globally distributed managed path service on Azure. Um, then uh, table API is like manage key value store on Azure. So each API gives you uh, the experience of a managed service that is tailored for that data model for that API. But the beautiful part is you can come in through any front door and use it in the same app and get the yeah. same value. Aspose offers a powerful set of file management APIs with which developers can create applications, which can create, open, edit, and save the majority of popular business file formats. Their product range supports a multitude of file formats, including Word documents, Excel spreadsheets, PowerPoint presentations, PDF documents, OneNote, Outlook, Project, Visio files, popular image formats, and many others. Aspose produces APIs for .NET, Java, and the cloud, which can be utilized in almost any modern language available today. Visit Aspose.com for a free 30-day no-limitations trial, and if you get stuck, message the friendly support team for help. All technical support is offered free of charge. And remember, if you are a lucky winner, you will receive a free developer small business license for Expose.net, a powerful toolkit for working with Word documents in your applications. If I start off with you know this Mongo interface, 
Could I also, in the same application against the same Cosmos instance, come in from a Gremlin interface as well? Can I mix and match that granularly, or do I have to stick to one once I start using it? So the the, the backend, remember, I told you we're yep. using this ARS uh, model. So in that respect, all of the data models are actually represented by the same type system. So you could access, for instance, uh, if you have a collection of documents, you could access it as a collection of documents, or you could come in through the Gremlin API and treat it as a graph. And then every document is treated as a node in your graph. That, that is really cool because when I originally heard this announcement from uh, at Build, I, I I know I got this impression. I'm assuming a lot of other developers did too, that, hey, these are just four different databases that are all unique or whatever, but it is the same database. It's the same data. Like you said, there's this common infrastructure that's abstracted away from us. And I think this is what's really cool right here is being able to do that you know, consolidation and reuse uh, the way that you have. Correct. Mm -hmm. And behind the scenes, you can view it as a human readable JSON. So I can actually go see my uh, documents as JSON document, or I can see my graph represented as a bunch of JSON documents. And you can potentially actually go take a JSON representation and convert it, for instance, from a document into a native graph representation. So uh, in that respect, the way the system is built, it's built for that very, very, so much flexibility that it will, it literally, Literally enables you to go and converge one data model to another uh, without much, you know, much friction. Um, so, you know, I know whenever you or originally create it, like it, it asks you what type you want to create. I think that's still the case. Correct. Um, but what, yeah, go ahead. So the reason why we've done it uh, is, you know, you, you when you come through the portal, you pick the API. This is designed yeah. to really tailor the whole experience through the portal okay. to that native experience of the data model. Which is what most people want. Anyway. Correct. So for instance, if you are uh, going to work with the graph, actually, when you come to the data explorer, after you create that graph and you pick Gremlin API, mm -hmm. you can actually visualize it inside the portal as a graph and then click on the nodes and edges and we sort of try to tailor the whole experience natively to that data model but when it comes to your client application you can go and access it via other apis as well but i always say you know with great power comes great responsibility you know uh, with that respect <laughs> sometimes you should also come and expect that if you designed it as a you know a mongodb collection and you're trying to access it via graph api you know there could be some things that yeah. you don't expect <laughs> So uh, we'll yeah, certainly... I don't know what you would expect. You that. <laughs> so that's what I'm saying. With great power comes great responsibility. Yeah. Um, but we will certainly, again, the, the way the stack and the system was designed is to be very, very flexible. Okay. All right. So now, now that we have this really awesome, flexible uh, new storage uh, technology with Cosmos, does Microsoft have guidance on when to use that versus its many, many, many other storage? Because we still have uh, SQL Azure, there's still table storage and blob storage. And I mean, there's, there's just many different things. So, you know, is there like kind of, you know, one or a couple places that we can look at to see what best fits what we need to be developing? Yeah, I think this is a work in progress right now to, you know, for instance, uh, show uh, a decision tree you know, uh, to give you the link. But my suggestion and recommendation would be if you are building a net new application, uh, you should always start with Cosmos DB because chances are it will address your needs. It will be far more robust. It will be far more flexible. It will address also the complexity of the data that you are dealing with, the size of the data that could potentially grow into uh, terabytes or petabytes. Uh, in, that re in that respect, it's, uh, you know, it's very flexible and future-proof. Uh, it also gives you very low latency guarantees. So it's the service that gives you uh, less than 10 millisecond uh, read latency guarantee for the 99th uh, percentile of the requests. And it gives you less than 15 milliseconds for the right index write latency, also at the 99th percentile. Um, and then, you know, uh, if and only if Cosmos DB doesn't work for you, first of all, you contact me uh, and our team, <laughs> and we'll find out why. 
And if and only if that doesn't work, then you go and uh, try out other technologies. You've mentioned also, for instance, Azure Table Storage, which uh, which is another NoSQL offering on top of Cosmos DB. So we've just uh, announced the public preview of the Table API on top of Cosmos DB, which gives you uh, basically the premium table experience um, uh, with secondary indices. Uh, I was going to say secondary indexes. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. Yep, yep, yep. Comprehensive <laughs> SLAs and so forth. And uh, right now we are actually building out uh, a stack that is storage optimized and we'll have the offering that is storage optimized offering, which will be uh, the equivalent of Azure Tables. So what that means is that uh, the two services will converge uh, in the near future and onto Cosmos DB stack with uh, uh, giving you uh, both the storage optimized experience, which is the equivalent of standard tables today and the premium tables and then the throughput optimized offering as well. Very cool. Very cool. Um, so, you know, I build, and actually it was you, <laughs> I was going to say Microsoft, but like you, uh, we're really emphasizing the, the scalability and the consistency types. Yes. Uh, so I know we talked, I know we talked about quite a bit about the scalability, but I think we should talk through like some of the different, um, consistency models. So yes. like, what are they and how do those work? Yes. So, uh, programmable da data consistency is a fascinating area, you know, and I tried to translate some of that excitement that Bill and boy, did it become cool. Who knew that data consistency could be that exciting? But it is. So the way I put it, you know, databases today, I divided into two categories. Number one is it provides, so one camp basically provides you with two binary, very extreme choices, strong versus eventual consistency. So for instance, if you want, you know, perfect consistency across the globe, across all of your regions, you can get it via strong consistency model. Uh, that will come typically with the price of uh, higher latency because you need to make sure that all of your replicas are synchronized uh, and lower availability because uh, until that happens, it's as if your database is unavailable. So most of the relational databases give you strong consistency and other systems as well. Uh, versus another extreme choice, which is eventual consistency. So in that respect, you know, um, it's really optimized for low latency, high availability, but all hands are off with respect to consistency. So this is one camp, you know, you basically red pill versus green, uh, blue pill. Uh, you have to pick between these two extremes. Now, there is another camp where it leaves everything for developers to configure. One perfect example of that would be Cassandra. So you have to basically deal with things like read repair, hinted handoff, quorum sizes, replication topologies, uh, and then the developer literally has to put has to have a PhD in distributed systems to go and figure out well how do I go configure all these settings to ensure that my durability is right, availability, latency, and consistency are all not compromised. So the developers basically are, uh, are like are, are facing this tension or like this really really challenging problem. Like how do they make this very very precise trade off between consistency and availability? For instance, if a failure occurs, consistency and latency, and this is very important uh, for steady state of the application, how much latency are you willing to tolerate or uh, do, does your application actually need uh, so that your users don't run off to some other application and consistency and throughput. And this is very important, for instance, for the, for the total cost of ownership, because the more throughput you need, uh, the more it will cost you. But then, you know, how much consistency uh, do you actually also need? So Cosmos DB is the only database service out there on the market today that gives you five well-defined, precise consistency models to choose from. And they are uh, strong consistency, which gives you the linear linearizability guarantees. Uh, it gives you eventual consistency, which is out of order reads, uh, just like the two binary extreme choices. And then we also looked at uh, 40 years of distributed systems research, and we've distilled a set of uh, intermediate consistency levels that are practical, well-defined, and developers can actually reason about them. So they are uh, bounded staleness, which basically means uh, your reads lag behind the writes by K prefixes or uh, T time interval. Uh, session consistency model, which gives you monotonic reads, monotonic writes. You can read your own writes uh, and writes follow the reads. 
and then a consistent prefix, which basically means updates are returned uh, by some prefix of all of the updates with no gaps. So the key thing here is that given these five well-defined consistency models, developers can now just pick the right one for their application specific for their needs. And you can change that choice anytime via an API or via the portal. Ah, that was going to be my next question. Yes. Yeah, because yeah, the thing is, like you were talking earlier about these, uh, you know, Cassandra and like all these these knobs that you need to turn. And and I find that like really annoying because whenever whenever I start on a project and, and it's probably just me, but I, I have this... Um, I have this big problem where, you know, when I have all these decisions to make at the beginning, I just, you know, kind of lock up and I'm like, I, I don't know. I just don't know yet. Like, I, I just want to get me, going. <laughs> yeah, let me let me write my thing and figure out the requirements as I'm coding and then I go pick this. So so I like that because I probably I'd probably set that. um sort of slider i probably set it like right in the in the middle um you know just just to kind of maintain sanity in my application i'd probably feel fine there Uh, but knowing that i could you know move it right or left would be uh would be great yeah you can change your choice anytime via an api or via the portal you can go override it on a per request basis it's very very flexible so you definitely you know you can do make your changes anytime you want. And the key thing, actually, so this is sorry to give you some mm-hmm. insight. Behind the scenes, uh, we're looking at the telemetry. How do developers actually use uh, these programmable data consistency choices that we uh, yep. enable? And so to give you an idea, only 3% use strong consistency. Only 4% use eventual consistency. These are the two binary extreme choices. Really? Okay. And everybody else is in the middle. And this is something that nobody else on the market actually offers today but Cosmos DB. So, and this is a very strong customer signal about the value that they're getting out of these programmable consistency choices that they can reason about and change at any point in time. Yeah, that's interesting because, yeah, that middle option seems like a, like the one dead in the middle seems like a, a great trade-off that I, I suspect would work in my application. Like, I, I, I wouldn't anticipate too many issues. Um, yeah, eventual consistency. Yeah, I, I think I'm just kind of going through the thought process. <laughs> when I look at that, you know, people say they call that never consistent. <laughs> uh, so, like, th- that would keep popping in my head, like, okay, that that just seems like anarchy. And then the, the you know, always consistent, that just seems like, you know, that's how they did in the olden days. Yep. <laughs> so, yep. I can, I kind of see why people go, you know, they just stick right in the middle. That makes the most sense to me. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, you talked about how you can, how easy it is to change these consistency types, like in the portal and in code. And I was kind of wondering, you know, kind of moving to kind of a different uh, aspect, how, you know, when I look about globally distributing my application, you know, do I have the same flexibility? How does choosing where it gets distributed to, how does that work? Is it, so it, this is where the global distribution turnkey comes in. You literally come to a yeah. world map and you see the regions and you pick the regions. The map, yeah. yeah, it's the world map coming back <laughs> click, to click, the, click, 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 and then you, you, I can figure that out. Yeah, you. <laughs> <laughs> Even I can do it. <laughs> Even my four-year-old uh, daughter can do it. So it's uh, <laughs> you know it's the fun part to clicking on the map and then you know you just click save and then uh, the data gets seamlessly replicated into those regions. You can do similar thing through uh, directly through your application. Just specify the regions where you want your uh, database to be, and uh, it will get seamlessly replicated. And you can again change it at any point in time. Okay. I, I, I think that's really cool because in the past I've I've known a lot of places that have written a lot of custom code many times over to do the same thing. And all I have to do is click on a map and I get it all those features for free. That's that's kind of mind blowing. Exactly. Actually, you know, I have a I have a uh, specific question for that then. If I have um let's say I have a whole bunch of data sitting in like US West and I go and I check, you know, I don't know, somewhere in Asia, for example. So I check that. Um, my data gets replicated. Then I can I uncheck US West? Yes. Okay. Man, so it's also right, good Carl, for migrating. That, yes. That solves that solves a huge problem. Yes. Because I I've been talking. To, I won't talk talk about the type of data, but I I was talking to a couple big companies about like video specifically, and you have this whole issue of. Um, you know, whenever you store the video, uh, we were talking about this architecture and going in all these details. And I said, okay, what happens when somebody moves? And they're like, 
Oh boy. <laughs> yep. <laughs> they're just kind of freaking out. They're like, uh, uh, cause basically, you know, they, they're going to, it's, they're going to be, they're going to move to Asia and they're going to be trying to like view all this video from us West and it's not going to be a good experience. So Correct. that's, that's awesome. So, you know, sometimes I actually, I, I joke a little bit. Cosmos DB is the database that enables you to, uh, to beat the speed of light. And, you know, people get intrigued by it, but the idea is uh, kind of related to what you just mentioned. For instance, if, uh, if for instance, I have a database in uh, West US and I am writing all of my data there, and let's assume, uh, you know, it's a local database, it's not globally distributed database, but most of my users are in Australia. And so if they want to go and read my data that I'm updating from West US, uh, typically what would happen is, you know, you would, uh, the users would come in in Australia and they would do the round trip to the West US. And purely, uh, you know, by geographic distance, the speed of light, uh, roughly it would be about 200, 300 millisecond uh, round trip. Now mm-hmm. with Cosmos DB, you can go and enable Australia with a single click of a button, the data will get seamlessly replicated. And when the users from Australia try to read that data, the data will be served to them locally and it will be served Mm -hmm. to them in less than 10 milliseconds. So this is what I say, you know, 200 or 300 milliseconds with the speed of light, Mm -hmm. if it were not globally distributed database versus under 10 milliseconds. So yeah, it's like a CDN for your database. It is. It is. is. I'll just, I'll give you that one. Uh, so we did, uh, so we, we did, you did mention like the SLA a few times. So like, what is the actual SLA or is that kind of complicated? Is it just a specific number? Yeah, no. So the SLAs, uh, this is really, really something that is uh stand out, uh, you know, something that we're very, very proud mm-hmm. of in Cosmos DB. So, um, you know, the way, as I mentioned earlier, fundamentally, we are in the service business, not the software mm-hmm. business. So when uh, developers uh, build their applications, typically, you know, most of the existing cloud services, whether it's Azure or AWS or Google Cloud, typically they give you an SLA with respect to high availability. And so at that point in time, it becomes a little bit of a game. Whoever gives you the highest number of nines, whether it's yeah. three nines, four nines, five nines or whatnot. So we, we, we've looked at it and we sort of stepped back a little bit and asked, again, a very, very simple but fundamental question. What do developers really care about? And, you know, they care about other things uh, when it comes to globally distributed databases and, um, you know, the things that are on their mind. You know, as I mentioned before, uh, latency versus consistency trade-offs, availability versus consistency trade-off, throughput versus consistency trade-off, and, you know, throughput versus latency. It's almost like you can do the matrix here. And so uh, the, the the decision that, uh, and something that we've been working very, very hard on to uh, build a very robust stack is to enable a comprehensive set of SLAs. That means uh, it's the only service today in the cloud industry that gives you the SLA for latency, for uh, throughput, for consistency, and high availability uh, at the 99th percentile. So you can come today to Azure portal, you can click on the metrics blade and you can actually look at your runtime metrics with respect to the SLAs. And you can see how your database behaves uh, and compare and look at uh, look at it uh, per region, across regions, and then you know just get that peace of mind that you don't need to go and hire an army of consultants to go and fine tune your backend or optimize for availability. Or if something goes wrong in the middle of the night, you know, your application will be down and it could be business ending, you know, proposition at that point in time. So this is the first uh, service in the cloud industry that gives you uh, comprehensive SLAs that are actually financially backed. Mm-hmm. So I, it's a very, very powerful, uh, you know, uh, and from the customer backward point of view, peace of mind and, you know, that their application will be up, available, performant, uh, serving consistent data all across the globe to their users. Don't wait for users to report problems. Raygun gives you complete visibility on errors, crashes, and performance problems affecting your end users. Replicate issues in seconds rather than digging through log files or having to rely on users to report errors or crashes. Raygun 
gives you a window into how users are really experiencing your software applications, supports all major programming languages and platforms, and integrates with your current development workflow tools too. There's a free 14-day trial, and it takes minutes to implement. So start resolving issues in your application and check it out today at raygun.com. So I was looking at, uh, you know, during some of the research for Cosmos DB and without even looking for it, it, it mentioned quite a few times in several places how inexpensive Cosmos is to run. So what what is the pricing model for this right now? Yeah, so the pricing model is based on uh, provision throughput and you provision uh, uh, at the granularity over second. We have this notion, um, we call it like a logical currency uh, or yeah, I call it like a Bitcoin for Cosmos DB. <laughs> it's called uh, request units or RUs. So uh, the request units are basically the abstraction for the resources uh, for you to run your database. Uh, and so what you do is you come in and you provision your throughput uh, using the RU's units. Uh, and you say, for instance, I want to run 100,000 RU's per second. You provision that throughput and off you go and you pay for what you need and you pay at the granularity of an hour. So what it allows you to do is uh, basically... Um, optimize for the workloads that are running on your uh, Cosmos database. Um, and then uh, I mentioned earlier in the podcast, we've added an additional capability called our use per minute, which is uh, you can think of pool of reserved uh, resources that you can go and amortize at the granularity of a minute. So for instance, if you're running at 100,000 requests per unit, then somebody tweets about your application and all of a sudden you have a wave of users going and pounding uh, you know, a particular geographic region you know, there's a lot of activity, you can, you know, without over-provisioning, uh, you can basically seamlessly tap into that our use per minute budget, uh, satisfy those requests, and uh, without, you know, increasing uh, your cost. So in that respect, uh, we also have done um, a total cost of ownership comparison uh, against other open source uh, popular uh, NoSQL databases and also against uh, DynamoDB. This is available online uh, and uh, the listeners can go and uh, read through that paper. We basically have taken the paper that uh, DynamoDB folks published in 2012 and uh, we've done a similar benchmark against um, our own uh, Cosmos DB stack. And what we've, what we've observed is that on average Average Cosmos DB could be anywhere five to ten x more cost effective uh, than other popular NoSQL uh, databases on premises or running as an IAS hosted version. And remember, uh, why is it so? I mean, uh, first of all, as I mentioned before, Cosmos DB deeply exploits cloud core properties and the economies of scale. So the commodity hardware, the fine-grained multi-tenancy, end-to-end resource governance, optimal utilization of resources, we can go and optimize the backend and then pass on all of those uh, cost savings to our customers. The other thing is also, you know, the superior elasticity. Uh, You can provision the uh, throughput, scale up and down within seconds. So that allows you to reduce the cost of ownership during non-peak times. Uh, For instance, um, open source NoSQL clusters deployed on cloud infrastructure, they offer limited elasticity in that regard. And on-premises deployments are simply not elastic because you already bought the hardware, you're already there, you're kind of stuck Mm -hmm. with it. Um, the other thing is also because it's a managed cloud service, uh, the, you don't need to have any administration or DevOps. Uh, you don't need to employ a DevOps team to handle deployments, maintenance, scale, patching, and any other day-to-day uh, tasks that you would require if you're deploying it on-prem or doing it uh, via you know, hosted cluster on the cloud infrastructure. And, you know, as I mentioned before also, again, it's... Cosmos DB fundamentally is a cloud-born uh, database, so it is cloud-optimized. Uh, and um, you know, something uh, for instance, if you bring in um, 
of their open source NoSQL software, they are typically not aware of uh, the differences when, for instance, a node or VM goes down, or if there is a routine image upgrade to a VM, or for instance, if you know, there are some other intimate, like, you know, premium disk uh, properties uh, that could be exploited even further. So that gives us a little bit more of the native advantage by being, uh, again, cloud natively born service um, that, that is hard to imitate. Okay. And it looks like the actual storage itself then is, is uh, 25 cents per gigabyte per month. Um, and that's SSD backed, which is pretty impressive. Correct. So the engine itself is, as you mentioned, it's SSD backend. Uh, also, mm-hmm. the engine itself, the way it's designed, it's completely schema free and schema agnostic. Uh, and this is, you know, fundamental difference, for instance, compared to uh, traditional relational databases. You know, uh, typically when you come to SQL or Oracle, you have to first identify what is the schema that you are going to need, then put your data into that schema. Then you need to identify a set of indices uh, that you need to go and create in order to optimize for the workload that you're going to go and run against that data. In Cosmos DB, in some sense, we've reversed that paradigm. First of all, at global scale, schema and index management is hard. And I can't emphasize it how hard it is. You know, (laughs) it's like, yeah, it's just sometimes really a conversation non-starter. So in in that respect, uh, you know, the database engine is fully schema agnostic, uh, but still the schema extraction is built in. So if you're building, for instance, some um, analytics uh, on top of it, or you're using some tool like Power BI or Tableau or whatever else that needs a schema, we actually, you can we can do the schema extraction and supply it up the food chain. Um, uh, but the other fundamental difference is that we provide the automatic and synchronous indexing of all of the ingested contact uh, content. Uh, so this is the reverse of the relational databases where indexing is opt-in. In our case, you opt out. You know, so we will automatically go index everything uh, so that your workloads run very, very fast. Mm-hmm. So is there any uh, things in the future, any roadmap items that you can share with our audience today? Uh, yes. So one of the things, so, so at the build, we've announced, uh, you know, uh, the preview of the table and graph APIs. Mm -hmm. So obviously we will go and we will GA those, uh, in the coming months. And then the story of, you know, multi-model, multi-API will become uh, richer and richer and richer. So uh, what you would expect is uh, in the near future, we'll have more APIs coming and more data models coming on top of Cosmos DB stack. So uh, it's not a hard leap uh, to imagine that at one point we'll have HBase APIs that will give us the synergy with all of the open source software analytics stacks. uh, Because HBase is part of every Hadoop stack. also Cassandra APIs. So this is to uh, meet the uh, Cassandra developers on-prem if they want to come and uh, take advantage of uh, Cosmos DB stack. Um, Other things that we're working on is uh, we are uh, also adding the capabilities to Park, you know, bring in the data, the bring in the workloads that are more storage optimized. Uh, so currently, the stack is throughput optimized. Uh, so it's optimized for the workloads that need very, very low latency. Uh, you need to optimize for uh, the throughput. Uh, but in some cases, you might want to bring the workloads that are uh, heavy in storage, but you might not need to run that many uh, transactions on top of them. So so this is something that we're also working on on the storage optimized offering. Uh, the other thing that also that is on our roadmap is uh, adding uh, NC compliance SQL on top of Cosmos DB. So that will meet, uh, you know, all of the um, relational database users and allow them uh, have a similar experience on top of Cosmos DB. And we are also working very closely with um, Azure Functions team uh, to build a very strong um, uh, connection and integration uh, with you know Azure Functions to give... Oh, that'd uh, be cool. 
you know, yeah, to give the serverless architectures uh, as a first class citizen and use Cosmos DB as a de facto standard for uh, da- for data in those serverless architectures. Um, oh, that's cool. That because that's exactly I, that's exactly what I had to do recently. So that's perfect. <laughs> yes, yes, uh, and you know, more and more synergy with uh, again uh, with as I mentioned, uh, uh, IoT. You know, IoT hubs, you know, Azure Functions for serverless. Uh, you will see a lot more integration with analytics stacks. Uh, we already uh, support today native uh, Spark connector to Cosmos DB. So you can actually, and this uh, connector understands the physical structure of our backend. So you can actually push the computation down close to where the data lives. Uh, in that respect, you can run your Spark SQL jobs or whatever else you might be running in Spark against Cosmos DB data. Um, we are also working with the Azure Stack team to provide uh, uh, Cosmos DB on Azure Stack. Uh, so lots and lots of exciting things coming. <laughs> That's it? <laughs> 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 like, like the, just the roadmap is like, you know, 10 other products worth uh, of features. So. <laughs> yes. Well, this is the exciting future of, you know, the cloud and Cosmos DB and everything else uh, yeah. it enables you to do. And again, being a globally distributed database, meeting uh, the users and the data where it's born at that geolocation and enabling this flexibility and fluidity in the performance uh, I mean, fundamentally, it, it enables a lot of very, very powerful scenarios. And, you know, data is the least common denominator for all of these use cases. And it's very, very exciting. Very cool. Okay, so let's move on. Is there anything else you wanted to mention before we move on? Uh, I think we covered it pretty well, but uh, if there's anything uh, else you're dying to tell us. I think so. Uh, I think what I would suggest to everybody, you know, the call to action, you know, if you haven't played with Cosmos DB, by mm-hmm. all means, uh, go play with it. One thing I, I did also, I wanted to mention. So if you're, sure. uh, if you are developing or you want to try to develop your application, we have, uh, also a local version of Cosmos DB, which oh, yeah. is a yeah. high fidelity, uh, experience from the developer standpoint of view. You can go and download it as, uh, you know, bare metal installation on your uh, developer uh, box, or you can actually get it as a Docker container, uh, Cosmos DB oh, local cool. emulator, and start developing without, you know, incurring any costs and try out the, the you know, the system itself. And then migrating it to the cloud will be very, very seamless mm-hmm. and, you know, similar experience. Yeah. I love using it through the web because it's just, it's like a button click away, right? You know, yes. give me one of those. Yes. And then, you know, you just start using it. Yes. And, and, and I think, you know, for if somebody's used something like Mongo, like I would just start with the, this is just my personal experience. I would start with like the Mongo uh, client library and it's, it is, it, I found it so easy. I mean, it was literally like three lines of code, you know, to connect and then to like read some data and write some data. Yep. Um, you know, it was this, that simple. So me using it from Azure functions that way, uh, was just, was super easy. Um, and the code was, was just really, really simple. There was no, no noise at all. Yes. Uh, Yep. So Carl, what is the dev tip of the week? So I have two of them. The first one is in Chrome. A lot of time when you're doing web development, you want to reload a page or you might want to reload a page and empty the cache, or you might just want to like do a hard reload all the assets. Well, uh, in DevTools, there's a lot of different options uh, to do them kind of manually that are hidden. If you have the tools open, so if you hit F12 and you just click and hold the reload button right up next to the URL bar, they'll actually drop down those different options for you all there. So you have one little spot to do all the different kinds of reloading that you might need for your development. And I know that I've seen that in the past, but it it always seemed kind of random when it showed up and when it didn't. The trick is yep. have the dev tools open. It shows up yep. every time. Yeah, I don't know why they don't enable that all the time. And because it, it gives you there's like a soft uh, reload, hard reload, and then I think empty reload. cache and yep. hard reload. Yeah, uh, just make it so that you, maybe even like with a longer delay, because um, there's times you want to do that. But I guess they they consider that a, a developer feature, so you have to have the tools open. Yep. So if it seemed kind of random for you in the past, just open the dev tools. It'll be there every yep. time. Uh, my next uh, dev tip is a VS Code one. I am a fan of the multi-cursor mode. So they actually have a ton of different ways that you can add multiple cursors. So you can either do the control out and arrow key and then like add 
arrows up and down, or you could just do alt click and you can actually combine those. Uh, one of the problems with that though, is sometimes you get a little over aggressive. You hit the, you know, the click too much or arrow over too much and you get too many arrows. If that you just hit control U and you keep doing it, they'll go away in the order that they appeared. Mm-hmm. So if that's cool, if you're a fan of multi cursors and like me are overly aggressive, uh, you can undo those. <laughs> oh wow! Uh, yeah, <laughs> I saw a demo online. I, I I'd have to find it, but um, it's basically showing off all the multi cursor functionality. And man, if you if you get good at this, it might have even been like a plural site video. If you get good at this, man, you can just be like a demon. It's just and like changing code everywhere, and it's amazing. Well, I I use it. Uh, heavily to edit the show notes so you know we Mm. we do it in one note and we export it to markdown but the the exporting process isn't clean and it's nice to have clean markdown for our our doc pad uh website and Mm. this makes it super easy to just edit that and make it perfectly clean markdown okay so rima there's a game that we play what i need you to do is pick a number between one and four inclusive two two okay would you rather be born with an elephant trunk or a giraffe neck? Giraffe neck. <laughs> I can see a lot further than. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but the elephant trunk, like those things are, I mean, that's useful. I mean, that's like a third arm. Yeah. yeah it, the problem with the neck is I'm, I'm already a tall person and yeah. <laughs> and, and there's times where that works against me, you know, hitting your head against things and stuff like that. So, okay. Try to be tall as a girl. Okay. <laughs> that's another well, that's why I preface jumps. it. I, I, I'm already so, tall. So, you know, maybe my wife, she's, she's actually, uh, almost a foot shorter than me. So, you know, she might want that taller neck where, yeah. But here's the thing, like Rima. So I, you know, I don't know how, how tall you are exactly, but you know, just imagine you, you have, <laughs> you have I like being neck. tall. This I is, am tall. So, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. But imagine like you have this giraffe neck and then you see, um, I don't know, you're looking at the top of your cabinets and it's like, Oh, this is dusty. What are you going to do about it? You know, it's like a T you, you have like T-Rex arms then, you know, relatively speaking. <laughs> <laughs> Don't Still, be. the view anyway. from the top is beautiful. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I like that. That's a good way of putting it. Okay. I will accept that answer. So Carl, pick a number between one and four. I'll take one. Number one. Uh, would you rather clean silverware in your mouth as your job <laughs> or clean golf balls in your mouth as a job? Uh, <laughs> at, at least golf balls, that's that's dirt, that's outside, yeah. that's probably say, cleaner. So easy. Yeah. Yeah. Golf balls for sure, right? Assuming it's like the same number. Like I, I don't. Otherwise, you'd be sick all the time. Otherwise, yeah. Because if you're you cleaning other people's silverware with your mouth, the golf balls are like dirt. Like there's nothing wrong with dirt. You know, you can you can survive dirt. Uh, okay. With that, uh, so, so uh, Rima, where can uh, people find you? Uh, so they can follow me on Twitter. It's at Rima Nami. Uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, they can also connect to me on LinkedIn account. Uh, okay. and, uh, uh, yeah, Twitter, LinkedIn. Uh, also I would suggest follow at Azure Cosmos DB Twitter handle and the hashtag mm-hmm. hashtag Cosmos DB for any new things that we light up in the service and any, uh, conferences where we are present, uh, or ask us any questions or, you know, just tweet us uh, what you like about the service and what you're building with it. Uh, we would actually really, really happy to see uh, and find out uh, what type of apps you're building against Cosmos DB. Very cool. So we'll have those links in the show notes along with links to all the other stuff that we talked about. Carl, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Carl Schweitzer. And you can find me at ytechie.com or on Twitter, uh, twitter.com slash ytechie. So Rima, thank you so much for coming on here and talking about Cosmos DB. It's very cool. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. 